everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. Happy November. Um, I really don't have a whole lot to jump into today um, regarding any kind of Stephen King news. Um, Things are a little quiet on the stand front. I know that they are filming um, in Vancouver at the moment, and uh, there's been um, a lot of set photos uh, that people have taken and kind of posted on Twitter, um, and you can check those out at thecircleopens.com, or you can find my Twitter at thecircleopens, and I've been retweeting those. And um, his Instagram has been a little quiet lately, but if you aren't, you should be following Josh Boone at Josh Boone Movies on Instagram because uh, he's been posting a little, some snippets of um, the uh, production here and there. So that's a, definitely a must follow for any uh, fans of The Stand. Also, I want to give a quick thank you to everybody who has left me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Every time I get one, it brings a smile to my face. (laughs) I really, really, truly do appreciate it. Um, This podcast is not terribly difficult to do for me because I'm reading my favorite book and I get to talk about my favorite book. Um, But a lot of time does go into uh, writing out my thoughts and analyzing each chapter. And then there's finding the time to record and edit. Um, And I'm still learning on the editing side, so I apologize for any Um, technical difficulties in the past couple episodes. Um, But it does take up quite a bit of time on my weekend and during the week to do this. So um, knowing that you guys are listening, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of awesome podcasts out there. So the fact that you guys are taking your time out of your day to listen to me really means a lot to me. And um, I'm truly very grateful for all of my listeners and everybody who has sent me an email or left me a review. Um, just know that it's very encouraging and it definitely motivates me to uh, keep on with this because um, 78 chapters of a book is a lot. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so thank you to everybody um, who has done that. And if you do enjoy this podcast and you haven't yet and you would like to leave me a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. So, I'm going to go ahead and jump um, right into chapter 28 after, well, I guess we should recap last week first. Chapter 27, Larry Underwood is still in New York City, and he is alone, but for a handful of survivors, and the monster shouter who roams the streets shouting about um, monsters. (laughs) He, uh, He, Larry, reminisces a lot about the last time he felt truly happy. And then he meets Rita Blakemore, a slightly older woman who has a handgun and pops pills like they're Tic Tacs. She and Larry, um, they talk for a little bit and decide to go to a steakhouse for lunch where Larry makes her some food, including a strawberry rhubarb pie. So in chapter 28, we're back in a Gunquit, Maine, where Fran Goldsmith is taking a strawberry pie out of the fridge. And I kind of like how King tied those two chapters together. Uh, with the strawberry pie. Um, Fran is at home and she finds herself zoning out a bit in the kitchen. Her mind is wandering, rhyming. She's losing focus and we learn that her parents are both dead. 
Carla Goldsmith died at Sanford Hospital, and Fran's father, Peter, who had once made a little girl feel welcome in his shop, was dead in a bed upstairs. Fran is so out of it mentally that she forgets about a skillet of oil and french fries that she had put on the stove earlier, and the fries are now burning. She quickly takes a sizzling pan outside and, quote, for a moment, the thick, dull blanket, which had swaddled all of her emotional responses for the last four days, was pierced, and she was acutely frightened. Frightened? No, in a state of low terror, only a pace away from panic. Fran suddenly remembers that she did cut the potatoes. She did put them in the pan. She had simply forgotten about them after the fact, and her train of thought simply drifts to the McDonald's down the road and how if she had really wanted some fries, she could have just gone through the drive through And thinking about the McDonald's, uh, her mind sort of goes to the fact that she wants pie, which reminds her about the strawberry pie in the fridge. And then she gets distracted by this knife rack that her father, Peter, made her mother that's hanging in the kitchen. And, you know, at this point, Fran finally breaks down. And she cries for a little bit because Peter died the night before at half past eight. And Fran feels like her ability to focus has been fragmented. After her dad died, Fran left his bedside and went downstairs to turn on the television for no real reason. Um, And there was only one station broadcasting. And it so happens to be WCHS, a Portland NBC affiliate. Fran has the unfortunate luck to witness the broadcast from Chapter 26, where the former soldiers had begun executing other soldiers on live television with the audience applauding. And if you guys remember, um, another group of soldiers broke into the television station and a firefight broke out between them, leaving most of them dead. Um, Fran, in her her state of mind, feeling so um, discombobulated at the grief and the shock of having just lost both of her parents to the super flu, Fran thinks that this is an actual television show. Um, She thinks that they should have probably put a sign on the screen to warn parents to put their kids to bed or change the channel. And she thought maybe WCSH might get their broadcasting license revoked because, you know, how bloody this program is. I don't think that she really understands that this is all happening in real time and it's not at all faked. Before the death of her father, um, when he had only started to get sick, he and Fran attended a nearby town hall where people were all coughing, sneezing, sniffling. Many of them are angry. Many of them are scared. Um, People are in tears, and not just the women. They decide to close off the town. No one would be allowed into a gun quit, and if people wanted to leave, they could, but only under the understanding that they cannot come back. They would barricade the road with cars, or after that got kind of protested against, town-owned public works trucks. <laughs> and people will stand watch at the roadblocks, with guns, of course. And if anyone tries to get into town, they would just be shot dead. Some people believed um, that those who are already sick should leave immediately. And of course, they were voted down on this, because almost everyone in town who wasn't sick had relatives who were. And they still believed a vaccine would be available soon. So how could they look at anyone in the face again? If they sent out the ill like a bad dog, only to have this whole thing be nothing more than a scare. So then somebody suggests that the summer people, those who spent the summer in a gun quit, would have to leave. And of course, this is an issue as well, seeing as how 
the summer people support the town. They pay their taxes on their summer cottages, and it's their money that keeps businesses afloat in the off-season. So, you know, if locals wanted them out, that's fine, but they would never come back once this passes. It is no surprise that the motion to kick out the summer people is voted down quickly as well. At midnight, barriers around Agunquit were put into place, and by dawn, several people had been shot and injured. Three or four had been killed. They had been people fleeing Boston and heading north, and a lot of them understood and continued on their way, but some were too scared or too sick to know any better, and they tried to ram through the barriers, and that's when they got shot. More people continued to get sick in a gunquit, including those manning the barriers. Peter Goldsmith had been opposed to the barriers himself, but when they got home from the town hall, he had taken to bed. He hadn't wanted to go to the hospital, and he wanted to die in private in his own home. Over the course of the three days, um, more and more people died, more fell ill. Gus Dinsmore, the parking lot attendant who had greeted Fran on the day she told Jess she was pregnant, had been feeling fine, but then came down with a cold of his own. The only person in town who seemed healthy, other than Fran, was Harold Lauder, the brother of Fran's childhood friend, Amy Lauder. Amy, who died shortly before the town meeting, her unworn wedding dress still hanging in the closet. So Fran sits outside now, and she's feeling numb. And then slowly, two thoughts begin to come to her. Both of them probably unrelated, or maybe they are related, and she's just having difficulty merging them together. One thought is that her father is dead, upstairs in his room. He had wanted to die at home, and he had. The other thought is that it's a beautiful, warm day, close to 80 degrees and sunny, the kind of day that brings people to Maine's seacoast, and it takes some time to cut through Fran's apathy, but then she realizes... It's a warm summer day, and her father is dead. One couldn't leave a corpse in the house during high summer. This is what cuts through Fran's fragmented thoughts. Quote, her hands jerked involuntarily on the tablecloth, yanking her plate off onto the floor. It shattered like a bomb, and Franny screamed, her hands going to her cheeks, digging furrows there. The wandering, apathetic vagueness disappeared from her eyes, which were suddenly sharp and direct. It was as if she had been slapped hard or had an open bottle of ammonia waved under her nose. Fran's mind tries to think of a solution. The local funeral home? No. She knows that she's going to have to be the one to bury her father because there's nobody else who can do it. Later that afternoon, Fran is in her father's garden digging a hole. She hears a car pull into the drive, and she sees Harold step out of it. He is 16 and heavy, despite being maybe the only two left in town who are alive. Fran feels an instant surge of dislike for Harold. Nobody liked Harold, not even his sister Amy, although maybe his mother had. It would figure that Harold would be the one of the remaining few left in town. Harold, we learn, loves to write. He edited the high school literary magazine, and he wore, he wrote short stories. Amy once told Fran that Harold whacked off in his pants and then wears the same pair of undershorts until they just about stand up on their own, which is super gross. Like, why is this? Why is that a necessary character trait that we need to know about? <laughs> 
Uh, so anyway, um, who knows how much of that is true or who, you know, it could just be the older sister being cruel about her brother. Um, but I guess once you get to know Harold, you realize that it could probably be true. <laughs> anyway, so Harold is described as having greasy black hair. He is tall at 6'1", but nearly 240 pounds. He likes cowboy boots, apparently, and flowered shirts that billow on him like stay sails. Franny honestly didn't care much about where he whacked off, um, but there's something about Harold that makes her uncomfortable, as if she sensed by low-grade telepathy that almost every thought Harold had was coated lightly with slime. Maybe he wouldn't be dangerous, even in this kind of situation, but he could probably still be unpleasant. Harold doesn't see her in the garden at first, and he calls up to the house at her Fran does consider hiding until he leaves, um, but then she forces herself to call out to him because you know what? He's a healthy living person. Harold um, comes over and you know what? She's probably right about his thoughts being lightly covered in slime because he immediately starts staring at her shorts and her halter top. His mother and father are dead as well, but Harold doesn't seem that choked up about it. Um, His response is, life goes on, does it not? And she mentions the car that he's driving is a Cadillac and that it looks like it used to belong to a local realtor. Apparently, Harold is driving it now, which probably says plenty about what happened to the realtor himself. And Harold is still letting his eyes roam all over Fran, his smile jolly and uneasy. Fran wants to get back to what she's doing. And Harold asks, uh, he asks, but whatever can you be doing, my child? Okay, what 16-year-old talks like that? Um, And who is he to be calling anybody my child, like he's some kind of older, wiser man, when he's actually five years younger than Fran? Fran is nearing her snapping point at this point. Um, She's lost her parents, and she's digging a grave for her father. The world is going to hell, and Harold Louder, who has taken another man's Cadillac and is feeling her up with his eyes, calls her my child. With controlled ferocity, Fran calls him out on this, and she points out that it is physically impossible for her to be his child. Harold brushes off her annoyance and just calls it a figure of speech. So Fran explains that she's digging a grave and that he should leave now because she's upset and she wants to be alone. Harold understands, but he seems kind of put off by the fact that she's digging a grave in a garden, of all places. Fran loses it. Um, She starts to scream at him that her father father loved his garden, and frankly, it's none of Harold's business anyway. Then she runs back into the house. Harold follows, but he's wise enough to stay outside of the screen door, and Fran suddenly feels bad for him. Harold roaming the ruined town in someone else's car. Harold, who probably never had a date, affected by worldly disdain, and she apologizes to him. Harold does the same, realizing he he didn't have any right to say anything. And Harold is willing to help her if she wants him to, but Fran wants to do this on her own because it's personal. Fran goes back out to the garden and asks Harold what he plans on doing, and he really has no idea. Harold feels like he's going a bit mad. He's driving around in a Cadillac that doesn't belong to him. He took an $86 pair of boots from Shoeboat, just walked in, got his size, and left. He feels like an imposter an actor in a play, but Fran assures him that he's not mad, and neither of them are. Fran thinks about Amy, pretty vivacious Amy, 
whereas Harold had always been just abrasive. But she still feels bad for him anyway. Fran still thinks that someone will come when all this is over. And, you know, someone in a position of authority. They'll put things back in order for everybody. This is when Harold begins to laugh. And he accurately points out that it's the people in authority who did this. They're good at putting things back in order. They've solved the depressed economy, pollution, the oil shortage, and the Cold War, all at a stroke. Yeah, they put things in order all right. They solved everything the same way Alexander solved the Gordian knot, by cutting it in two with his sword. Just a quick fun fact here, but this is the second reference to the Gordian knot. And the Gordian knot is, it's usually used as a metaphor for a really difficult problem. Um, solving this difficult problem by easily finding an approach to the problem that renders the perceived constraints of the problem moot. Um, And it's first mentioned in Fran's first appearance when she tells Jess she's pregnant and he suggests that they get married. Um, And it said he had the air of a man who had decided the best way to solve the Gordian knot problem would be to hack right down through the middle of it. So it really has no bearing, but I just thought it was interesting that King has related two particular problems um, in this book to the Gordian knot. (laughs) So Fran still thinks that this is a strain of the flu, but Harold tells her that Mother Nature doesn't work that way. He is of the mind that somebody in authority got a bunch of people together in some government installation to see how many funny bugs they could dream up. He says... Bacteria, viruses, germplasm, for all I know. And one day, some well-paid toady said, Look what I made. It kills almost everybody. Isn't it great? And they gave him a medal and a pay raise and a time-sharing condo. And then somebody spilled it. And I can't think of anything more accurate than what Harold <laughs> what Harold says here. Um, for being 16, he's very smart. <laughs> And Harold has plans to leave a gun quit. He wants to get out of town. He feels like staying will only mean he goes crazy. He asks Fran to go with him, um, but he doesn't know where he's going yet. She tells him to come back and ask her again once he does know, and this seems to brighten Harold considerably. He leaves her alone then, and Fran watches until he's gone. Then she goes back to digging her father's grave. Sometime after four, Fran goes upstairs with her mother's good tablecloth. She carefully rolls Peter's body into it, although this is no easy task. He's been dead for a while, so his body is hard and unyielding like a piece of furniture. This is not a pleasant experience. Moving him causes him to belch, a sound that seems never-ending, rasping in his throat as if a locust had crawled down there and now had come to life in the dark channel, calling and calling. The sound startles Fran and she stumbles back, knocking over the bed table. And this is a jarring smell. And Fran falls down and she realizes now that this is not some life-size doll. This is her father. She's burying her dad. And the last of his humanity, the very last, was the juicy, gassy smell that now hung on the air. And it would be gone soon enough. I know this is a really emotional moment for Fran But, oh, just describing the sound and the smell that's coming from the corpse, um, it really turned my stomach. I don't want to hear anything described as juicy, (laughs) especially not in the same sentence as gassy. So that was kind of, it was kind of gross. I'm sorry. I have to say that. 
But it also, it brings to life just how disturbing this is and just how difficult this is going to be for Fran, um, not only physically, but emotionally. And she ends up crying again, but this time she's wailing. She really just lets it all go, allowing herself to feel the grief instead of pushing it down or pretending that it's not real. Finally, she comes back to herself and she starts over. She dresses Peter in his best suit. She pins his purple heart to his jacket, along with conduct medals, campaign ribbons, and the bronze star he won in Korea. She powders his face and his hands, and once she gets the tablecloth over him, she sews it shut. With some exertion, Fran manages to drag the body downstairs, and down the hall, into the kitchen, and out the back door, and down the porch stairs. Peter would have been difficult to move, even if he had been alive, but... Being dead, it's infinitely heavier and less flexible. So this is definitely putting some strand on Fran in every sense of the word. Finally, she gets him buried and she tells him to be at peace. Fran returns to the living room, kicks off her shoes, and immediately falls asleep on the couch. It's there that she dreams and she has a nightmare. In the dream, she was climbing the stairs again, going to her father to do her duty and see him decently under the ground. But when she entered the room, the tablecloth was already over the body, and her sense of grief and loss changed to something else, something like fear. She crossed the darkened room, not wanting to, suddenly wanting only to flee but helpless to stop. The tablecloth glimmered in the shadows, ghostly, ghastly, and it came to her. It wasn't her father under there, and what was under there was not dead. Something, someone, filled the dark life, and hideous good cheer was under there, and it would be more than her life was worth to pull that tablecloth back, but she couldn't stop her feet. Her hand reached out, floated over the tablecloth, and snatched it back. He was grinning, but she couldn't see his face. A wave of frigid cold blasting up at her from that awful grin, No, she couldn't see his face, but she could see the gift this terrible apparition had brought for her unborn baby, a twisted coat hanger. She fled, fled from the room, from the dream, coming up, surfacing briefly. Fran wakes up at three o'clock in the morning, and she's feeling a horrible sense of dread. She has the vague thought in that moment between sleep and awake, him, it's him, the walking dude, the man with no face. And then she sleeps again, but this time without any dreams at all. When she wakes up, she doesn't really remember the dream, um, the nightmare, but she does think of the baby in her belly, and she feels a fierce wave of protectiveness. It perplexes her and frightens her, but it's strong and undeniable. This is another really sad chapter. Um, Nick's last chapter where he sat with Janie until she died and promised to bury her That was an emotional one, Uh, but this one has a lot of similar themes. Whereas Nick had railed against having to bury uh, Janie in his mind, Fran clings very briefly to the hope that maybe the local funeral home would be the place to take her father, but she knows very quickly that no one else will bury him but for her. Um, And at first she tries to roll him up in a tablecloth in his pajamas, but soon she comes around to undressing him, putting on his best suit, his medals, She gives him a proper burial, no matter how hot and sweaty and tired she is. He deserves that much from her. So Fran shows a lot of strength and determination, despite how much she's grieving. 
And she's also still a bit naive about her situation. Given what's happening in her town, um, one she calls ruined, she still thinks that someone will come along and fix things. She still thinks it's just a bad case of the flu. Harold, um, as icky as he is, points out the harsh truth. And he seems to understand things are changing and will never be the same ever again. He believes that this is, um, this is enough that it's, it's changed enough that he's willing to take another man's car, a dead man's car, and he steals some shoes from a store that was probably not even open or manned with employees. So let's just cut straight to this. Harold um, is a creep. (laughs) I don't really think that his personal, like his physical description is something to judge, except that maybe King is showing us he doesn't take care of himself. Um, A a 16-year-old who weighs 240 pounds. Um, But that doesn't, that's not really indicative indicative of who he is as a person and it shouldn't be. Um, but his hair is greasy and that could also just be because Fran doesn't think he's showered in a couple of days. Um, he has bad acne. Okay. But you know what, what 16 year old doesn't and it's Harold's behavior that really puts you off. Fran is wearing shorts and a halter top because it's hot out and she's buried. She's digging a grave Um, And he's blatantly checking her out. He's not even trying to hide it. He's condescending towards her. And he certainly doesn't seem to be mourning his family the way Fran is mourning hers. Yes, um, I know everybody deals with grief in their own way. But to Harold, it seems like, oh, well, you know, what's done is done. Moving on. And while he's 16, he also seems pretty intelligent. He has grasped that authority is responsible for the super flu because Mother Nature doesn't work the way that this strain of flu works. He has deeper insight into how society is dealing with it, and he's smart enough to know that he needs to get out of a gun quit. There is nothing left for them, him there, and who knows if there ever was anything there for him at all. Fran is repulsed by Harold, but she also feels pity for him, and his sister Amy was the pretty popular one, Amy had the 3.8 in college. Um, Harold seemed to be the complete opposite. Abrasive, where Amy was vivacious, as Fran put it. Fran feels uneasy around Harold, but she tries to be kind to him where she can because of the pity that she feels. This could ultimately bite her in the bottom, especially if she does agree to leave town with Harold once he decides where he wants to go. The only two, they seem to be the only two living people left in town, Um, But I'm not entirely sure. Gus Dinsmore seems to still be around, although probably not for much longer because he's also sick. And you know what? I really like Fran. I think she is a strong character. Um, She's able to stand up for herself, but she can be emotional as well. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. I know a lot of criticism for Fran is she cries too much. And you know, I cry too much. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't necessarily see that as a negative personality trait. Let her have her emotions, people. Let her feel her feelings. (laughs) She has conflicting feelings too about Harold, disgust and pity. And she does feel badly for him. And rather than shut him out or be mean to him, she apologizes for her behavior and treats him with kindness, as cautious as it might be. She still has those instincts that he's not a good person, and I think she should be able to trust those instincts. I think um, people deep down have kind of a um, red flag warning signal for certain people, and it's just up to us whether or not we um, listen or ignore it. 
Fran is flawed, but she also has, she's also someone who will probably not be afraid to voice her opinions in a world without authority. And I don't see her as a damsel, and I appreciate that about her. As with Nick, Fran also dreams of the man with no face. There is a terror there, and she still feels it waking up, knowing instinctively that he's the walk-in dude. When she wakes up fully, she doesn't remember the dream at all, but Randall Flagg is making himself known to the survivors now through their dreams. It's something that triggers Fran's maternal instinct to protect her unborn baby, even if she can't figure out what brought on the wave of protectiveness. So we got a glimpse into Nick's world post-plague, and then Larry, and now Fran, and we also got introduced to another survivor, Harold. Nick, Larry, and Fran all lost people they cared about. Um, Fran's parents, Larry's mother, and then Sheriff Baker and his wife for Nick. Fran and Nick helped bury the people they lost. Um, Even if they didn't want to do it, even if they knew it was going to be hard, they did it. Larry left his mother in the hospital hallway with a deposit slip pinned to her blouse stating who she was. And I can't really um, blame Larry too much for that because, I mean, where else is he going to take his mother in a crowded New York City? But I still think it's a little indicative of his character um, and their characters, how they all have handled death. And if you want to add Harold into that, um, his his um, discussion of his parents dying was kind of just a, uh, well, you know, moving on, life goes on. So that tells you a lot about him as well. One person we haven't really touched base with in a while is Stu Redman. And lucky for us, we'll get to see what he's been up to in Stovington while the country burns around him. The last time we saw him, he was thinking about breaking out of the facility And next week in chapter 29, we'll get to find out if he succeeds because shit is about to go down in Vermont, people. It's going to be a really good one. So I hope you stick around um, for next week's chapter with Stu. And that's it for this chapter, everybody. I really liked this chapter. I say that after every chapter. I know I do that, but I really love um, digging into these characters and just the smallest things that they do um, kind of tells you the kind of people they are now. And this kind of post-apocalyptic um, chaos changes people. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they progress through this book and where they end up by uh, chapter 78. So that's it for me. Um, another quick thank you to everybody for your ratings and review and your feedback for the podcast. And um That's all. I'm not going to keep rambling on like I usually do at the end of these things. So um, M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. Mm